right, let's get right into it. For seminars coming up, Vegas may have a couple spots left for the February 7th through the 9th seminar. March 6th through the 8th will be in Wichita Falls, Texas, then up in Woodmere, New York on April 17th through the 19th, and then Denver on May 15th through the 17th. The following camps are going to be all squat and deadlift camps. Moodus, Connecticut on January 25th. Phoenix, Arizona may only have one spot left for February 15th. Woodmere, New York on February 23rd. And then we've added a second date for Minneapolis on March 22nd. And the last lifting camp currently on the list will be in Portland, Oregon on February 16th. And that'll be a press and bench press camp. For nutrition camps, we'll be in Woodmere on January 26th and Houston on February 1st. For coaching development camps, we'll have Houston on the list. That'll be the, covering the squat on February 22nd, and then Villa Park, California, covering the power clean on March 21st. Stan Efferding is bringing his seminar to The Strength Co. If you're interested in that, on January 26th, head over to thestrength.co for more information and registration. That's thestrength.co. Starting strength gyms are still running their Gain 10 pounds challenge. That's gain 10 pounds of lean mass. For more information and participating gyms, head over to gain10pounds.com. And as always, for details and registration information on all of our events, head over to starringstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. We're here again on Friday just for you because we don't have anything we'd rather do on Friday than be here for you. Just like you don't have anything you'd rather do on Friday than be here with us. See how that works? So we're going to do a Q&A today. You've sent in some uh, partially useful questions. We're going to deal with them at the level at which the question merits. But first, comments, comments from, from the, the haters. haters. Okay. This is this is the worst one I've seen in a long time. I'm gonna get this out of the way. Uh, Charles Porges or Porget says, "You look great, Rip." All right, I don't for a minute think that this is anything except a slap in the face. Okay, I don't know what Charles means by this, but fuck you, Charles. Okay. That that's on top of the pile as far as hatred is concerned because you don't mean that. I don't know what you mean, but that's masterful. All right. Okay. Uh, Herb Ital Bivore says, I love Rip, but does this guy really look like he knows anything about sport? Sport. Sport. Not sports, but sport. Why, Herb must be a European. Because Europeans and presumptuous Americans, pretentious Cockbites in America say sport when they mean sports. Which sport right? is he talking about? I, I don't know. Sport, he's talking about all sport. All sport. All sport. Okay. None your business. Now, have we heard from none your business before? I'll have to look it up. Well, do it later. It's not that pressing an issue. Because it's just a comment from some anonymous fuck on the internet. Uh, I made some comment here previously about it being hard to ignore you being too far overweight. It's obvious to me that you've lost weight, and that deserves respect and acknowledgement. By the way, thanks for all the great tips and advice. No matter who we are, how much we know, or whatever the case may be. It's always hard to stay disciplined. Keep it up. <laughs> Nanya, I haven't lost a pound. <laughs> I guess it's the makeup. Bree you guys have gotten better. Bree's got better at makeup, I think. 
she makes me up before each one of these things. It's the cheekbones. Must be the cheekbones, the accentuated cheekbones. Yeah, look on the on the monitor shot. Do I look thinner? Oh yeah. Do I? Oh yeah. Oh, it's un, un, like this thing here. Yeah. It, you it, like that? It normally adds twenty pounds, but I think it takes away on you. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. This is. Uh, I'm thinking about having something done with this. What do you think? I can fix it. How are you going to do that? Tape. Tape. <laughs> you put tape on it, and then make up over the top yeah. of the tape. There you go. Just kind of. Pull it up like that. Exactly. Yeah, but look what it does here when you do that. More tape. Just tape will fix it. Fix it. Well, all right. That kinesio tape. Mm -hmm. You do my shoulders while we're at it. Mm -hmm. Just have enough of it sticking out of the shirt sleeve to where it looks like I'm, somebody will know I've got kinesio tape on because that's so fashionable. Mm -hmm. It's what I what wear when I do my wads. <laughs> yes. Oh, here's Charlie Duran saying, i try to do my accent here. There are weens in Africa dying for a dram of whiskey and rips flinging it doom the jocks. He doesn't approve of the dumping of the entire bottle of Jameson. All right, I want you to understand something. I didn't buy that bottle of Jameson. All right, Nick did. All right, I don't buy Jameson, but this was his idea. And I said, all right, if you want me to dump a whole bottle of Jameson down the toilet, I'd be glad to do it. And and I said, wouldn't you rather dump a bottle of, like, tea down the toilet? And he said, nah, it won't look right. won't look right. It needs to actually be Jameson. So what you saw on that video was me dumping an entire bottle of Jameson down the toilet. And the only thing I can tell you that was good about that was that it made the air in the room smell nice <laughs> for, you know, three or four minutes. It's kind of pleasant in here. Did y'all notice that? Mm -hmm. Kind of pleasant. And, uh, and we all enjoyed that, but we didn't have to taste it, you know. And you'll notice when I smelled it, the, the shit has no nose. And it was just general ethanol in the air is what is what produced that smell. It wasn't the nose of the whiskey, so to speak. All right, uh, one more. Uh, Blizzard XC12 says, Jamesons are the ones laughing. You still bought the bottle clown and lost me as a subscriber. Was that English? It's English without punctuation. Punctuationless English. But, you know, these people are the bottom 3%. They don't understand the value of commas, periods, uppercase. You know, just these are the bottom 3%. What did you think was going to happen? On comments from the heaters. You like that segue? I like it. Okay. Here's a little story that I want to start off with. This is a little old, actually, but uh, I, I bring this in because it is so outrageous, and it uh, further bolsters my position on on doctors in general and pediatricians in particular. Pediatricians I've long held are far, far worse than even general practice physicians, GPs, you know, uh, or just entry-level people, and they hadn't been to a, you know, hadn't had a lot of education beyond just medical school. Pediatricians are sent to pediatric school and are taught to be stupid. They're actually, apparently, worse when they get out of school for pediatrics than they are when they go in. Because here is a story, and this, this you know, I've had a lot of experience with them because I deal with kids all the time. And I've, you know, we talk to kids in the gym and we have to listen to what their pediatrician tells 
their parents about what we're doing wrong in the gym and how, you know, it's bad for kids to lift weights and it'll stunt their growth and and what else? Stupid pediatrician. Shocking growth plates was what I. Shocking said. growth Shocking. plates. Well, for example, there are kids walking around all over North America right now with one leg shorter than the other because their growth plates were shocked. Shocked. When they were. Amazingly enough, only when they were in the gym lifting weights, not playing football or soccer. That's healthy. That's fine. Running into another kid at 20 miles an hour is perfectly fine. Clipping his knee. Oh, yeah. Sideways, you know, getting clipped on the football field, you know, on the soccer field, getting kicked in the shin on the soccer field. It's just fine. It's just fine. Pediatricians love that. But – if you were to take an empty bar and put it on a kid's back weighing 45 pounds and then bring him into the gym, and this is non-dynamically loaded, just squatting down, standing back up with a manageable load, and then slowly increase that load by five pounds of workout for the next several months. Well, that's, that's pediatric hell. It's child abuse. It's child abuse. People should be jailed for that kind of activity. And by God, your pediatrician is going to tell your son the same same thing a pediatrician here in town told one of my kids a long time ago. I'd hate to see you jeopardize your career in sports by doing a bunch of heavy weightlifting. Really, no shit. So, these idiots are now telling people that more kids should get weight loss surgery, even some pre-teens. More teens, more kids should get weight loss surgery, bariatric surgery, chopping their stomach out, forever altering their digestive system. Even some pre-teens, like 11. Is 11 a pre-teen? Where do you get to be a teen? Thirteen? I think that's an interesting semantic distinction. So 13-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 10-year-olds, fat kids should get surgery. Why do you think these kids are fat? Has it occurred to anyone to maybe drag the fucking parents into the doctor's office. And since the parents are apparently in charge of feeding them, at least some of the time when they're not ceding that responsibility to the public schools, do, do you think maybe it'd be a good idea to involve the parents in maybe some behavior modification before we chop part of the stomach out of an 11 year old kid? God damn it. Maybe get them off the fucking couch. Fucking idiots. I, I'm sorry, I should <laughs> shouldn't be that. There not anywhere in this article does it say anything about behavior modification, about exercise, about eating differently, about the parents maybe assuming some measure of responsibility for what they're feeding their children to turn them into these little tubby porklets when they're 11 years old. But no, what you guys want to do is irrevocably alter their digestive system so that the responsibility of the parents is abdicated. Okay. Now... Let's get into your questions. So we're going to do Q&A now. We're going we're gonna to do some uh, questions that you've sent in. And the email address for you to use to send these in is radio at startingstrength.com. That's where we will take your questions for Starting Strength Radio. Logical, right? Radio at startingstrength.com. Makes sense. 
send in the questions, make them legible, use, you know, conventional English, use commas, periods, uppercase, lowercase when it's appropriate. Don't send me a bunch of stupid shit. Uh, don't, don't, you know, make it a manageable question, you know, and we will, you know, feature it the next time we do one of our Q and A's. Um, if it's an interesting question, I'll treat it more seriously than if it's some stupid repetitive bullshit that we deal with all the time. All right, here's the first one. It says right here, my tennis elbow appeared after increasing the weight on my farmer's carry. I'm now about a month into the injury since it hurts to flex my forearm muscle. Am I just making the damaged inflamed tendons worse by doing heavy or even any amount of pulling? I have no problem with squats, press, or bench. I read that it could take months to heal. Obviously, if I don't deadlift, then I'm not doing the program. If I should lay off deadlifting to let it heal, what should I do instead? Okay. We have uh, developed a, a method for dealing with tennis and golfers' elbow, and this is on the, this is on the website. It's in several places on the website. Uh, look it up because we talked about this quite a bit. What basically it involves is you're going to use chin-ups, a whole bunch of chin-up volume. You're going to use, say, 20 double or triple you know, chin-ups, do two or three chin-ups 20 times, and we space that out with walking a lap or something to that effect. And what this is going to do is it's going to inflame the piss out of your elbow. All right? It has been our experience that this takes about three weeks to work, not months. It's been our expense experience that doctors are really not in a position to understand how this works. And because a lot of them want to do surgery on uh, bad tennis elbow and golfer's elbow, and that's just, you know, that's how you get new golf clubs. All right. What you do is inflame it, make it inflamed. You've got a little inflammation in it right now. We want to inflame the hell out of the whole elbow so that the inflammation rises to a degree that will cause the injury to granulate and heal. Look up the inflammatory cascade. This works essentially every time you do it correctly. You have to do our version of it, not your version, because your version is going to be wrong. Okay, if you do our version of it, it will work. Look it up on the website. Basically, it's a whole bunch of chin-ups about once every five days for about four or five workouts, and typically it's gone by the, by that, by the end of that period of time. Now, the relationship between the farmer's walk and the deadlift is rather straightforward. Yeah. The relationship between training and exercise is rather straightforward yeah. as well. Yeah. The farmer's walk's an exercise. Yeah. It's, a, it's a performance. It's what you do in a strongman competition. It's hard to train the farmer's walk mm -hmm. because it's, it's, it doesn't lend itself as well to training as the deadlift does. Because the deadlift can go up five pounds of workout, and the farmer's walk really, it's hard to do it that way. Farmer's walk depends on strength already present, and that strength comes from deadlifting. So I don't know if he failed to increase the weight on his deadlift, thinking that the farmer's walk was in lieu of deadlifts, but this is terribly common. So what I would, what I would do is I would read what I the, the articles on the website that deal with the difference between exercise and training. This is the two-factor model, and there's, there's two or three articles I've written about that. Look them up. Get familiar with the concept. Apply the concept to your training, okay? Now, here we are with the next question. I've never heard you discuss what's the normal fat-to-muscle ratio gain to expect. Well, I wonder why you've never heard me discuss that because I discuss it all the time. This is a 
perfect example of not having done one's homework before one acts. Acts is the question. In four months, I've gained about nine pounds, and muscle mass is up three pounds, according to the data in my scales tracking app. Now, let's look at that sentence. There are three errors in one sentence. That's kind of a that maybe a record. All right. In four months, he's gained nine pounds on our program. Well, not unless you're five two, and and you already weigh like one forty eight. You should have gained more weight than that on our program. You haven't gained. Uh, three pounds of muscle with a nine pound weight gain. If you've done our program, because that's not the correct ratio. I, and, and three, I don't care what your scales tracking app tells you that's wrong. Okay. That's bad data. You're a 38 year old male with a desk job and a new baby. That's not sleeping well through the night yet. All right. I don't know what your actual body weight. Well, yeah, I do. Your weight is 173.6 pounds. Uh, and this is an incorrect estimate of your body fat. I'm, I'm quite sure. Uh, here's what we expect. All right. Let's say you've gained four, you've been trained for four months. All right. At a body weight, you say that you have gained nine pounds and you're weighing 175 now. So you started at 166. So you should have gained about 20 pounds by now. You should be 186, 185, 186, somewhere in there. Had you done that, had you gained 20 pounds, what we would expect to have happened is that your lean body mass should have gone up about 14 pounds, and there should have been about 6 pounds of body fat gain. That's the expected ratio. Now, if something different than that happened, you weren't doing the program, right? You, you weren't eating correctly, you weren't training correctly, and that's not what happened. So you didn't do the program correctly, all right? Go back, look at the program. Look at the article entitled A Clarification. It's on the website. A Clarification. Read it three times. This material has been dealt with at length in that article. And we wrote this a long time ago because of questions just exactly like this. Uh, you, you can't not do the program and then say the program didn't work. All right. Do the program. Read the article, a clarification, and you will understand more about what the hell is supposed to be going on after you do that. Okay. Now... I have a pain on the front of my shoulder that I believe is bicep tendonitis. This is most likely from overextending my shoulder for many weeks in trying to compensate for a poor bar position on my low bar squat, something that I've since corrected. Good. Most people carry the bar with too wide a grip and therefore overextend their shoulders, they pull their elbows up too much in the back in order to compensate for the fact that they're not getting enough carry effect up the forearm from the elbow with their elbows lower. In general, we want the bar. We want the grip on the bar as close as we can get it with the elbows down low with just enough shoulder extension to bunch up the posterior deltoid to make a shell for the bar. But if you're raising your elbows up out of the bottom of the squat, video yourself and make sure you're not doing this. You are going to be causing problems. A lot of times that is what causes golfer's elbow. Okay. But this guy's got a pain in the front of his shoulder. All right. Here's the, here's the problem with front of the shoulder, anterior shoulder pain. It's a complicated place. It's a damn complicated place. The pec inserts there, the lat inserts there, the supraspinatus tendon of the rotator cuff inserts there. All that stuff's about that far apart. And it's terribly difficult to pinpoint exactly what the structure is that's inflamed unless you've got somebody helping you that actually knows shoulder anatomy. I don't know that you've got bicep tendonitis. I doubt you have bicep tendonitis. Okay. Uh, 
you're now at a point where the pain isn't getting any worse, but also isn't getting any better and it's affecting your bench press. I think what I would do is get an MRI if you've got access to that, because it would be good to know exactly what is inflamed. If you have a partial tear in the supraspinatus tendon, then that quite likely is what's going on. It's probably not the bicep tendon. Then it may be something that needs to be addressed. Uh, I think I remember another question about this. Uh, in fact, it's the next question. So let me, this will be part two. Rip, I'm 51. I've lifted since I was 11. Four years of powerlifting competition. Now I lift to stay strong and healthy. I've battled a right AC joint injury for 12 years now. Chromioclavicular joint injury. Had two injections under x-ray into the joint. Several x-rays that show moderate bone spurs. Moderate bone spurs. Doctor says the only cure is to cut the end of the joint down or shave it. Benching or push-ups aggravate the joint extremely. Law enforcement can't take a chance of being injured. Machine, cable crossovers don't bother at all this shit. All right. Uh, you can press. Benching hurts it. Okay. Now, second specialist said I should never have had the cortisone shots as lifter, but it's a little late for that now. That is absolutely correct. Cortisone shots are a stupid-ass idea for somebody that intends to keep using his shoulder. All right? If you've got bone spurs hanging down off the AC joint, you have got impingement between those osteophytes and the underlying rotator cuff tendon. All it's going to take is a situation where you get out of position with your elbow your shoulder and put a big torque on that thing like one would see with a <laughs> ring dips gone wrong which they always do uh, and you're gonna you're gonna punch a hole through your rotator cuff tendon all right in my opinion if i were you and i knew i had those moan spurs but i had not yet poked a hole in that tendon if I were you, I would go in and have the Mumford procedure, that's what that's called, performed prior to the destruction of the tendon. Because it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to recover from that, and it's a hell of a lot less painful than having to repair the tendon and at the same time do the Mumford procedure. You'd rather have an original equipment rotator cuff tendon an intact rotator cuff tendon. If you can do something prophylactically to preserve the integrity of that tendon before you injure it, which you're going to do if you've got bone spurs on it, then that's what you need to do, all right? Uh, and to the previous guy that doesn't know what his actual situation is, you may have the same kind of a deal going on. Get it looked at. An MRI is diagnostic for these types of problems, okay? Now, dearest Rip. That's sweet. I'm like, finally, someone's nice. Someone with manners. Someone with manners, someone who cares about my feelings. Right? No one ever cares about my feelings. Dearest Rip, I'll be brief-ish. I'm 40. Had more success starting strength the past 10 months of committed lifting than I have with anything else representing a weightlifting program in my life. This is a nice man. That's nice. That's very nice. My deadlift, squat, bench, press have all gone uh, up significantly and tell people about you at the program all the time. Uh, good. Thank you, Justin. You're a sweet, sweet man. A caring, loving man. The problem is I can't do more than one chin-up, and it's weak. I'm too weak, fat to do it. 5'10", 200, put on 20 to 30 pounds of body weight uh, since starting the program. I'm fine with the weight increase because I've been able to lift more, but I can't lift my ass off the floor in a chin-up bar. What do you recommend? Well, I recommend that you revisit the A Clarification article that I talked about earlier. A Clarification is in the articles at startingstrength.com. What has probably occurred here is that your 20 to 30 pounds 
most people are more specific than their with their weight gain than a 10 pound to either side of the thing error well that'd be five pounds 22 30 pounds would mean 25 pounds give or take right all right so most people are more precise about it than that i'd like to know what your lifts are you don't tell me what your lifts are if you've gained 20 to 30 pounds and you're of you're 510 you're 200 pounds and you're only deadlifting 275 then you haven't done the program you've eaten too much you've drunk too much milk you've done something with your caloric intake to make your body weight go up and your fat to lean body mass distribution is upside down you got fat you didn't put on the right amount of muscle mass in other words you were eating too many calories for your particular situation if you do that and your strength does not go up commensurate with what it should have happened when you gained 20 to 25 pounds of body weight then yeah you're probably not going to be able to do a chin up now for most men if you can't do a chin up just getting your deadlift up to 405 fixes that all right because chin ups is lat strength and arm strength and stuff like that and uh chin ups uh usually come along accidentally with increasing your strength on the on the five main exercises uh i think you need to look at that look more carefully at your situation read the clarification article and see if that's where the problem is jay hello starting strength i'm and i'm an 18 year old freshman in college who apparently didn't learn to spell when he was in high school and a collegiate men's volleyball player. Ah, he's on a sports scholarship. That's why he didn't learn anything. It's good. Sport. Sport. He's on a sport scholarship. <laughs> right? Oh, Will, calm down. I'm just fucking with you. You're probably a smart kid. You're listening to us. You'll be even smarter when we get through with you. Okay? Just finish my novice linear progression. How do you know? When I started, I was 6'1", 150. Since then, I've put on about 40 pounds of body weight. I've seen incredible strength gain. So you're 6'1", 190. I don't know that you're finished with your novice linear progression. Uh, but I'm about to explain to everybody else why. All right. All aspects of my athletic performance have improved, and the patellar tendonitis that has plagued me through my athletic career is gone. Good. Should have gone. That's typical. You start off our program with patellar tendonitis, low back pain. Typically, it goes away in three or four weeks. That's normal. But a problem I've had are some minor shin splints, presumably from running and jumping at an increased body weight. Is there a solution to this? Or is this par for the course when rapidly increasing body weight while playing high-level sports? All right, Will, listen to me, hun. Well, my friend, my buddy, do you do anything on a volleyball court that looks like running? No, you don't. Then how is running either training or practice for volleyball? It's not. Don't do it. I know your coach doesn't understand this because sports coaches just don't understand most things. Okay. All he understands is volleyball. And what he's heard is he's got to make you guys run because running's hard and sweaty and tired and stuff. But he hadn't thought about what actually goes on on the volleyball court in terms of training for volleyball, conditioning for volleyball. Volleyball is a series of anaerobic bursts. It has nothing whatsoever to do with running two miles or a mile or a lap, for that matter. It has to do with jumping and being jostled around on the ground and being resistant to injury and having tight, strong hamstrings that protect the knee when you leave the ground and land back on the ground. All of this stuff is squats and deadlifts and overhead strength, which is presses and bench presses. This is training for volleyball. And if you want to do some specific conditioning for volleyball, 
then maybe some some side-to-side shuttle work, some cone drills, stuff like that. But keep in mind, you're practicing volleyball, right? Do you encounter anything in a volleyball game that you don't encounter in volleyball practice? If that's true, then practice is not is not being structured correctly. Now, is it? Running is not good for volleyball players. And running is what builds shin splints. Running gives you shin splints. Yes, running at 190, gaining a bunch of weight is going to make shin splints worse. My point is you don't need to be running. You shouldn't be running because it doesn't apply to volleyball. Okay? So I don't know how you fix this. I understand you're at the mercy of this idiot that's coaching you. All right? Sandbag. You know, figure out a way to not run. Certainly as hell, don't run when you're not in the presence of the coach. Don't do that stupid. This is why you got shin splints. Shin splints will heal if you'll let them heal. But your increase in body weight is good. You know it's good, don't you? I don't think you're through with your novice linear progression. I think you need at six one, uh, and a volleyball player, you'd be more effective at 210 than 190. All right, so give that some thought. Okay, okay hey, Rip, I recently watched your talk with Dr. Manji, late to the party, I know, but barbell training is a tool for cardiac rehab. Father-in-law has had several heart attacks and currently has around 12% heart function. He is in a cardiac rehab program, which involves a lot of three-pound dumbbells and light cardio. Have you ever trained someone in his condition? And if so, what would you recommend given the high-risk nature of his condition? Sean, my friend, your father-in-law is fucked. All right, this is not your fault. This is his fault. He's had several heart attacks, the first of which should have gotten his attention but apparently did not. All right, he's down to 12% cardiac function. It doesn't matter what he does at cardiac rehab or anywhere else. Uh, The man's on the way out. I'm sorry about that. You guys need to make your plans. Uh, I hate to have to tell it to you this way, uh, but there's not any point in beating around the bush here. The man's destroyed himself. There's nothing left of him to fix. Several heart attacks, 12% heart function. These kind of people are the ones that die. I wish that weren't the case. And those of you people who think I'm being harsh, why don't you listen to what I'm telling you? All right? If you let yourself get into this bad a condition, you're going to be dead. Okay? Don't do that. The first Heart attack is your wake-up call. That's the alarm going off, all right? Now, that's when you need to get worried about what you're going to do about it, not until you've had several and are down to 12% cardiac function, okay? If he didn't care enough after the first one to fix anything, I'm sorry, we can't help him. You know, there's just a limit to what, you know, training can help you recover. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about your father-in-law, but this is, uh, this is a question for everybody else, not him. Okay. Now, what is this thing about here? Uh, I plateaued. Four months on overhead press and deadlift. Only two lifts I have any interest in progressing. Yes, I'm stubborn. So am I. Okay. I have recently become a gymnastics coach to a small group of boys and young men. They have not had a coach for a couple of years, if ever. I was a gymnast and coached in college a decade ago. Now I am a CPT. I guess that means certified personal trainer and CFL two 
CrossFit level two. Oh, got it. All right. <laughs> got it. All right. I've been listening to your podcast for a while as my CrossFit gym owner is a big fan. I've been implementing some of your cues. My adult clients, I think I understand how important strength is, blah, blah, blah. Now, question is, what's your advice, thoughts on implementing an actual strength program for young gymnasts? And secondly, what merit, if any, do you give the standard way of conditioning that gymnasts perform? Very, very high rep body weight exercises that mostly mimic the skill, etc. All right. First question is, uh, what are my thoughts on implementing a strength program for young gymnasts? Well, obviously, I think it's a good idea. Uh, but the problems are logistical here. Uh, how often do you have these people in the gym? Do you have access to the adequate equipment? Do you have the authority to put them on a program like this? And what's very important, or you say young gymnasts, are these people of uh, Tanner Stage 4 or above where they can actually benefit from an organized type of programming like this. Now, we have a bunch of kids at the gym. Rusty trains a whole bunch of little kids over there. And he's got a, 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 a pretty good approach to this. Uh, he primarily has them squat, deadlift, and stuff, and he primarily worries about their form. He's teaching them the things that little kids don't do well. They do not control their Little kids just fall into the bottom. They don't understand about eccentric control. They won't control their squat down into the bottom. This is probably the most important thing he has to teach them. Second most important thing he has to teach them is to control the position of their low back, which is isometric control. They're fine at running and jumping. They already know how to do that because that's what kids are real good at doing, but they're not good at controlling eccentric descent, and they're not good at isometric control of the low back. These are both very important things they can learn, and depending on how old your gymnasts are, that may be the best you can do with teaching them. Now, if you're talking about 15-year-old kids, those kids are probably Tanner Stage 4, and they can train. They can actually do a training program. But if you've got these kids all in one group, then you have the standard logistical problems that every coach that deals with a whole bunch of kids at one time runs into. Uh, the way you're going to fix that is going to be completely dependent on your particular logistical situation. Where's the gym? How often are they in it? How much time do they have in the gym? These are all questions that you'll have to figure out the answers to. And the way you're going to figure them out is you're going to study the stress recovery adaptation cycle, which is the basis of all correctly designed training programs, and figure out the best way to implement that with the kids. All of this stuff is in the two books, the blue book and the gray book, Practical Programming. Get familiar with that. Figure out a way to, to implement it. And the second question is, what do I think about uh, a thousand shitty reps of some weird version of an exercise. I think that's how people get hurt. That's how people get hurt because once you, you fatigue a movement pattern, then the precision with which that movement pattern is executed goes down. This is how you hurt yourself doing Isabel. All right. Which is, what is the silliest? That's 20 reps in that 20 singles. 60 kilos snatch CrossFit level two. You probably know what Isabel is. All right. This is how you get hurt. If you are doing a movement pattern that requires accuracy and precision that you have not practiced and that you have not trained for, then you're going to get hurt doing that movement pattern, especially if you're doing it real, real hard because there's competitive pressure to increase the, the decrease the amount of time in which you took to do the, do the workout. All right. Same thing with a bunch of ring dips and ring work and stuff like that. Kids hurt their shoulders on that because they're tired of doing a whole bunch of reps in the absence of strength to back up the movement pattern. High reps is not, that, that doesn't make you stronger. High reps doesn't make anything you can do for 50 reps is not heavy enough to make you any stronger. All right. 
This, again, comes with your understanding of the stress recovery adaptation cycle. That turns into a cardio session that hurts you. Yeah, it's a dangerous cardio session. And there's other ways to do cardio than to risk injuring your shoulders doing stupid shit. All right. Now, uh, hi, Rip. Excellent podcast this week. Well, that didn't narrow it down. All of our podcasts every week are excellent, right? My question is, if you have ever encountered an actual non-responder, I understand we all lie somewhere on the bell curve, with some responding quicker to training than others, but I was curious as to whether or not you've actually encountered a true outlier that would not respond to proper training. No, I have not. The only people that do not respond to proper training are people that are so old and infirm that they cannot engage in proper training or people in the highly unenviable position of having a metabolic wasting disease like muscular dystrophy, Lou Gehrig's disease, some horrible debilitation that actually prevents the muscle's ability to adapt with normal muscle protein synthesis. These kinds of people cannot, cannot do this. But thankfully, that is a tiny minority of the population. Uh, you will not actually ever encounter a person that wants to do this, that absent that kind of pathology cannot actually respond to proper training. doesn't occur. Now, the degree to which they respond to proper training is going to, of course, vary with the aforementioned genetic endowment, but with age, their ability to eat enough to get recovered, their ability to sleep enough to get recovered, prior injury history, this sort of thing. So there's a big, huge, gigantic amount of individual variation in the ability to recover from a proper properly constructed training program that's that's constructed according to the stress recovery adaptation cycle. But as far as actual non-responders go, no, that's pathology. That's not, uh, that, that is not genetics. Okay. Okay. Rip thoroughly enjoy the podcast. I wonder how it can exist without 40 minutes of product promotions and chit chat about what you did over the weekend. Did we chit-chat about what I did over the weekend? No. Oh, no, we didn't. You know, because you know why? Because I didn't do anything over the weekend <laughs> worth talking about. That's why. That's right. I did use our starting <clears throat> strength bar on our starting strength rack earlier, though. Did you? Yes. That's Now, that's fascinating. Yes. Um, I did also wear our Dominion strength starting strength belt. Is that what you did I this did, weekend? I did, that, I did that this weekend. So. Oh, that's so cool. Let's talk about that for a while. Yeah. No, let's don't. All right. (laughs) Okay, he's 37. He weighs 165. He only squats 185. He deadlifts 275. He presses 115 and benches two and a quarter. Why does a 165-pound guy bench more than he squats? Red flag. Right? Currently serving in the Canadian military. Oh, well. He's a Canadian. Is that racism? It's a boot. No, they're white. It's not racist. Well, you don't know that for sure. No, that's true. I've tried numerous states Canadian. You're going to tell me now Canadian's not a race. Okay, I've lived, I've tried numerous times to begin and follow through with the starting straight novice linear progression method. However, see, however means that you didn't follow through with the starting strength novice linear progression. So, Everything else is immaterial. All right. If you can't do the method, then you can't obtain the results that the method provides. Now, this is just arithmetic, right? This is simple logic. Uh, No other considerations need be discussed. You haven't done the method. And all these complicated questions that are essentially uh, excuses are not Uh, going to apply here if you can't do the program i understand you can't do the program all right but there's not any way to do the program while you're not doing the program you understand my point here you can't do the program 
and not do the program at the same time. In other words, if you can't do the program, don't expect the benefits the program provides. All right. But this squatting 185, benching two and a quarter at a body weight of 165. James, man, you're not trying. You're a you're a you're a gym rat. You go to the dumbbell rack when you get to the gym. I I know you. <laughs> I've known you for a long time. All right. Okay. Next. No. <laughs> don't send me shit like that. Okay. I don't want to see it. <laughs> This is a Q&A. This is not a personal training consult. All right. Okay. How does one choose between a goatee and a mustache? Rip seems to go back and forth on this. Obviously, you can't train them concurrently. Some insight would be much appreciated. Okay. This is a mustache. Okay. Now, if to this mustache I were to add some hair... Right down here, just like this, or even down here like this. That would be a goatee. But if the mustache comes around the lips and continues down onto the chin, that is called a Van Dyke. Look it up in the dictionary. It's called a Van Dyke. A Van Dyke was the famous beard worn by our mentor, Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed was cool. He was crazy, but <laughs> he, crazy. he was in, an insane person, but he was cool. Because extreme people are sometimes cool, and Oliver Reed was cool. I first saw Oliver Reed wear this Van Dyke-style beard in the best version of the Three Musketeers oh, that's ever so, been. So good. Oh, that thing was the 74, 1974 version of, yeah. of the Three Musketeers. Uh, the Salkind people made that. That was a great movie. It was funny, and the, the sword stuff was so good. It was just, that's the best. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And Oliver Reed played, uh, he played uh, Athos. Played Athos in that movie. And... Uh, it has since become fashionable to to refer to this as a goatee. It's not a goatee. That's a Van Dyke, all right. Uh, however, the the place got so crowded with those that I decided to just go back to the mustache. I probably won't do the goatee. It's either going to be that or a or a mustache, Van Dyke or a mustache. Uh, my advice to you would be to just try to look like me. Okay. Now, <clears throat> hi, Rip, first of all. Let me scratch my nose here a minute. All right. Hi, Rip, first of all. Thank you for all of the knowledge and benefit of your experience that you put out for our benefit. Squats become my favorite new thing doing the gym. Thanks to your book and videos. I'm still working on my technique, but incidentally, every now and then I manage a perfect rep. And the ease with which I pop that weight right up is a testament to the effectiveness of the technique you teach. Yes, you're correct. Absolutely true. As a working stiff with young kids and a wife at home, I have to manage my time in the gym as effectively as possible. Well, yeah, most of us do. Sometimes it's just a killer to wait three to five minutes between sets on a five-by-five five day. Would it be okay to do these exercises as supersets? I'd be done a third of the time if I could just squat, bench, row, rest three to five minutes, next superset, is, etc. As opposed to doing each singular movement one at a time and moving station to station. All right. Uh, John. Yeah, you can do them as a superset if you don't want to make any progress, all right? If fatigue limits your ability to do the next set, then you hadn't rested long enough. If fatigue from the previous set is carried over to the next set, you cannot train optimally for sets across, okay? Now, there's a couple of problems here. Five sets of five day 
should be done with heavy enough weight because you're an intermediate trainee to where three to five minutes is completely out of the question. All right. Let's say you're going to do five sets of five at 405 or even 375. Your rest between those sets is going to have to be 10 to 12 minutes. All right. And if you get up to the point where you're doing five sets of five across, you're genetically gifted enough to do this. Five sets of five across, which means you're, you know, a 535 squatter. Your five sets of five at 555 across are going to take maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. All right. Because that's hard. That's a lot of hard work. Three to five minutes is what you rest between your warm-ups when you're a novice, all right? The first couple of weeks of your novice progression might see you wait five minutes between your work sets. But once you get to any level of strength where these these work sets across become hard, you have to rest or you're not going to get them. This indicates to me that you're not lifting heavy enough weight to understand what the hell I'm even talking about. You don't talk about your body weight. There's all kinds of information left out of this. All right. So I can't really address your situation, but I can give some advice to people who are in a, in a time crunch on their workout. All right. If, if you need to do it this way, this is perfectly reasonable thing to come in on a day that you're going to do Squat, bench, and deadlift, all right? And do it like this. You're going to set the bar up in the rack for your squats. You're going to do your two empty bar sets. Then you're going to do your warm-ups, your weighted warm-ups up to your first work set. You're going to do the first work set. And then you're going to go set the bench press up. Leave the squat rack set up. Go set up the bench press. Now, if you're in some stupid-ass commercial gym where you can't do this, this might not work very well, but you have to have two stations set up at the same time. So then you go over and you do half of your warm-ups on the bench press. That'll be about enough time for you to come back and do your second work set of squats. Do the second work set of squats. Go back over and do the rest of your warm-ups on the bench press. That'll be enough time for rest between your second and third work set of squats. Do the third work set of squats. Then do the first work set of the bench after you take your squat bar down off the rack and put that up. That'll be enough rest between the squat and the first work set of benches because you've already warmed up for the, for the bench. First work set of benches. Do that. Now go set your deadlift up. Put it on the ground. Do your first warm-up set of deadlifts. Second warm-up set of deadlifts. Go back, do your second work set of benches. Do the last warm-up set, last two, if you're going to do two more warm-up sets of deadlifts. Do both of those. Then go back, do your last work set of bench press. Put the bench press up. Do your work set of deadlifts, and you're done. You've saved a whole bunch of time without significantly compromising the quality of the rest between the the work on these different body parts. Okay, That'd be what I would suggest if you're in a position where you need to do it like that. But John here is not. Okay? Now, look. last thing in the stack all right let's make it a good one well i have no control over that i didn't write the question so i don't have any idea how good it's going to be i have kind of glanced at it but i don't have got it memorized it probably is not in a pile if it's ridiculous Uh. Uh, maybe yeah yeah that's not necessarily true hi i injured my low back doing some stupid shit when i was 22 who hadn't i had a muscle tear in my lower back according to my doctor back then so i'd take a six month rest from training okay no you didn't have 
a tear in the muscle belly in your lower back. Lower back tweaks are very, 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 very seldom. Erector muscle belly tears, very, very seldom. They're usually back tweaks that are common to the entire human race. You jerk a little bitty muscle, uh, one of the in, intravertebral muscles or ligaments, or you tweak a piece of cartilage or you pinch something, or you do all of the dozens of other things that account for typical local low back pain, all right? But very, very seldom do you tweet, do you actually tear the muscle belly in the lower back. Had you torn a muscle belly in the lower back, there would have been a bruise. A, a muscle belly tear is accompanied by a bruise, unless it's a very minor one. All right, minor ones heal up very quickly. In no event is a low back going to take six months of rest from training to heal up. You just didn't want to train, okay? That's fine with me. I understand that. But your doctor was wrong, and you are lazy, okay? You just wanted an excuse to not train. Well, you had one, all right? Now, I believe I have a scar because I still have a small amount of pain. It's in the upper side of the glute, almost above it on the right side, all right? Uh, that sounds like an SI joint problem to me because that's approximately the area that an SI joint problem would show up. He squats 70 kilos, deadlifts 85, presses 30. He's a rank novice, a rank novice because he hadn't trained for six months. Yeah. Okay. And he probably wasn't doing the program at the time anyway, not doing the program now. All right. Here's the situation. I hate to break this to you. But you're probably going to have some recurring pain in that area for the rest of your life. SI joint problems show up in humans. They're painful. You train through them. If you can't train through them, then you can't train. But there's going to be some pain associated with training through it. What you have to understand is that training through an SI joint problem will not hurt the SI joint. Just because there is back pain does not mean that training is endangering the back because back pain and an injury in the low back are typically not aggravated by squats or deadlifts. I can't tell you how many times I've come into the gym with an SI joint irritated and I've put on my belt and I've gotten under the bar and I've done my set of my work sets of squats and I get out from under the bar and everything's fine. The pain's gone away. It's been Rusty's experience. It's been Bree's experience. It's been everyone's experience that you train through back pain. Unless you are shitting yourself, peeing in your pants, both your legs are numb and your knees collapse. In other words, unless you have severe neurological compromise, if you got a local low back pain, you train through it. Not everybody has the balls. I understand that. But you have to understand that local back pain can be trained through. And in fact, if you're ever going to get anything done, it's going to have to be trained through. Get used to the idea. Sorry. That's the reality of the situation. That's every time well, it's every time everybody squats. My back, it's got, hurts my, my back pain. My back hurts all the time. Second set of squats, I feel but great. but do you know how many people report the same thing that don't train? Yeah, right. You know, everybody. It's it's. I'm sorry. Back pain is is the only thing all human beings everywhere on Earth have in common. You know, some of us are Muslims. Some of us are Zoroastrians. Some of us are fundamentalist Christians, some of us are atheists, some of us follow the ways of the North. We all have back pain. Some of us are black, some of us are white, some of us are yellow, some of us are red. 
Is that all the races? Canadian. Some of us are Canadians. <laughs> Some of us are Canadians. We all experience back pain because we're all humans. And you're not exempt. I'm real sorry, but you're not exempt. Okay. So, look, the table's empty. I'm so sad. I guess we need to stop talking now. Thank you for joining us here on Starting Strength Radio, and we will see you one way or another next week.